Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks for listening in on another episode. Or if this is your first time stopping by, I'm grateful to have you. This podcast is all about the getting started moments, the turning points that got each guest started on a new path toward happiness, the ups and downs of the journey, how they were able to commit to a change, and all the lessons learned along the way. I hope you all enjoyed this particular episode, so let's jump right in and get it started. On this week's episode, please welcome in Michael Smirklow, who is a co-founder and managing director of Next Coast Ventures and the author of the book, Mr. Monkey and Me. Let me give you a quick background on Michael, and then we'll jump in the episode. He is an entrepreneur and professional investor in early stage technology companies. He is the co-founder of a venture capital firm in Austin, Texas called Next Coast Ventures. Prior to this, he bought a small technology services company, Service Source, and ran it for 12 years, taking it from a small startup to a public company with over 3,000 employees worldwide. Michael was also one of the first employees at a pioneer cloud services company called Opsware, then LoudCloud, which also went public. Before becoming an entrepreneur, he had, and thoroughly hated, jobs in investment banking and public accounting. Mike splits his time between Austin and the San Francisco Bay Area and is married with four children. And I highly enjoyed this conversation with Michael. Um, This was really interesting, definitely talking so much about entrepreneurship and just really how to get started with a variety of different things and get out of our own head, if you will, um, to move in the right direction. So I hope you all enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. So without further ado, please welcome in Michael Smirklow. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Glad to uh, have you on. Glad to chat with you. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Well, I have a feeling, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but you know, I've done this long enough where I think I have a feeling doing some research on you and, and looking at the backstory. I think we're, I want to spend a lot of time with around entrepreneurship and kind of, and I'll actually read verbatim here, correct me if I'm wrong, but the difference between your success and failure is right between your ears. And I kind of love that thought process of like, you know, mindset and, you know, how you think and, and how you do things are so valuable. And I want to spend a lot of time with that because obviously a lot of folks that are listening in either are getting started with a venture doing something um, or they're having some struggle. They're getting, they've got started, they're kind of working through it, but you know, the mind has gotten in the way, right? They're letting that fear creep up or all these different things. Um, but I want to get into that a ton today. But before we do, I thought, you know, I would love to understand a little bit of your getting started story. And, and I know all of us have these different inflection points you know, the different spots that we go through that you could take probably 30 different stories. Um, Maybe it's around, I was kind of looking at where you're at Morgan Stanley, and then kind of had that transition to startup life. I don't know if that's a point you want to chat about. But I I thought that was one that seemed relevant with some serendipity in there. But anyways, start there. I'm kind of curious, you're getting started story, how you even got to what you're doing today, because it didn't seem like you started out like that. Yeah, no, no. Um, I think it all starts. So everyone has an origin story, I believe. And I think con- contextually, because I'm a, I grew up a, a dirt poor kid in Toledo, Ohio. And so I, I didn't even know what Morgan Stanley was when I was younger. And I always, you know, I always thought like, oh, those rich people, whatever they do, those investment bankers. I, when I was interviewing for investment banking, I literally had to go watch uh, Pretty Woman. Oh, and wow. Wall Street, <laughs> and neither both were horrible preps. But I was like, I don't even know what this is. So, so I want to. I, I think that context is important because I was and part of my origin story was just getting going. I, I grew up in a very uh, economically challenged environment, not a lot of role models, which a lot of I'm sure your listeners can relate to. And I just wanted to get out. And I give that background because a lot of my early motivation was just getting from what I saw and what didn't like and was not positive to something different. And that allowed me, that drive allowed me to get early jobs. I started off in public accounting and then uh, went to work for an old investment bank called Lehman Brothers Business School. And then I went out to the Valley in the late nineties to work for Morgan Stanley, which he called upon. And that was a really great transition point for me um, to your getting started because Here's this guy, I give the preamble because here's this uh, myself who hadn't made any money. My first job, I think I made like $28,000 and I was instantly the highest paid person in my family history. So like, let's just level set it. So fast forward to 99, it's the dot-com boom. I met Morgan Stanley. Uh, They're trying to retain uh, younger talent. I had had very high reviews in terms of my performance. And they said to me, 
we're going to pay you this year, Mike, $500,000, including your bonus. And next year, if you stay, this is 1999, we'll pay you a million dollars, million dollars. And, and, you know, from, and I remember Mike, I was raised by a single mom. I called up my mom and I said, they, they, I told her the offer. The hard part is I'd already agreed to go work for a startup. And I told her the decision why, and my mom grew up Irish Catholic, didn't go to college, said her exact quote was, well, you could be shoveling blank in hell for a million dollars a year. Why would you leave? Like that was the the mindset that I was given. And I just said, because I wanted to go be part of something. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to go build something. Um, so I give that context because I think that helps because we all go through these moments like, am I going to make the jump or not? But to me, even the financial rewards, which were dramatic to anything I'd ever heard of or thought of, to go be part of a startup and build something just meant that much to me. Well, and that's a an interesting point maybe to, to double click on because I went through something similar. I definitely wasn't in an economically challenged. I would say it's middle class. You know, I grew up in, but being in a small town, like I didn't real, I didn't even know what entrepreneurship was. I had no idea that, Hey, I could actually, now I saw people running their own business and I had glimpses yeah. of it, but I didn't really know what that meant or how, you know, you think, Oh yeah, that's just for people that are wealthy, that got good breaks. That's not for me. I'm gonna go work somewhere. So do you, how did you get to that point of like, and, and this goes maybe into the mindset a little bit of like, because a lot of folks similar to myself was like, I just got to get a stable job. I got to yep. save money. I don't want to be, it's always kind of like, I don't want to be poor. I want to be able to pay my bills every month. That's a win. How did you yep. get from that spot to, I'm going to take a chance on myself because I really want to build something greater um, than just having a job. Yeah, it's a good question. I do see it so often. And I think most people early on, I can tell most people coming out of college, go get a job, right? Go get training, go get a, a foundation. You know, it, if I had to really bring it to a word, Brian, I think it was my soul, which is a weird world, word. But even though as I was early in my career and I was getting some professional success and economic success, I just didn't feel fulfilled. And that's a weird word, word to use. And I say that with caution, but I just felt like there was something more. And a lot of my own desire was I wanted to be, I wanted to run something. I just knew that as I was in the early part of my career, but I just knew that, that the financial aspect of it, and I think it's a little like a Maslow thing. Like once I, once I got some financial success and some academic, I got educated, okay, I'm not going to be poor, or I hope I won't be, I take some bad decisions, meaning like I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. But once I got that, then I started thinking about more of the fulfillment side. And that was really the, the draw for me. I don't know how where you take this, but I'm just curious uh, from a standpoint. And and again, this is part similar growing up where I, not that I don't like nice things. I didn't need, I wasn't around like, yeah. you know, you had a, so it, was that part of it? Maybe growing up was actually a benefit because you realize, Hey, I can get by without, you know, whatever money you were making, you know, how it's kind of like the more money you make, it's like, it seems like the more money you spend. But if yeah. you're able to live well below your means, now you can really start having some financial security. Like, was that a big part of that transition as well? Knowing that, you know, you I, can... I don't know if it was, it's a great point. I don't know if it was conscious or not, not <laughs> meaning I meditated or thought about it, but there is something, and I've always thought this about, you know, coming from nothing. I didn't know how poor I was. I mean, I really didn't. We, we were, you know, we kind of big family and all this stuff, but I didn't know how economically challenging it was until mm -hmm. I got out and saw the world. I was like, wow, I should be really poor. But I think one of the freedoms around that is I didn't have expectations or trappings around it. And I always maintained a pretty low burn, if you will. I just was, you know, it's just like I'd grown up with nothing. So the, it was a pretty low bar to step over, but I think that's a big part of it. I, did, I didn't know what I was missing. Maybe that was, maybe that was the blessing. How did the transition work from going to Morgan Stanley to this startup? Because we could easily say like, oh, yeah, you, you quit your job, you start over there, you know, the rest is history. But like, what were some of the <laughs> hurdles, some of the things you jumped through just to get to that spot and 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 maybe be happy with it? Because I don't even know, were you happy right at the beginning? Yeah. Or were you like, oh, crap, what did I do? No, was, <laughs> it was much more of the latter. Um, and, you know, here, here's the other context. I got recruited um a guy named Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz now have become much more prominent because of their venture capital firm. But Mark had been Ben at the browser, the best of the best entrepreneurs. Ben's written a great book on entrepreneurship called The Hard Thing About the Hard Thing, which was the company I went to work for, LoudCloud. So I was going to work for, I was looking for a company to go be part of. And one of my mentors said, you'd be crazy not to go work for a really great founding team just so you see that. 
So I went in, if you think about the world where you go in, your expectations are here. Mm -hmm. Reality was like here. And just in terms of what I thought a startup was, or I thought operating was to, to what it actually was, I would I equate it to this, Brian. It would be like if the good example would be like, hey, I think it would be fun to run a marathon and you dropped in and you were in, you know, Kenya or wherever the, you know, the two hour marathoners and they're just running. And it was like, holy blank. It was chaotic. It was just, everything was a, a, a swirl, if you will. And so what I, what I was really uncomfortable with is just the pace and the decision-making and the flatline. I remember asking Ben about something, about something I thought we could do. And he's like, well, we'll just go do it. It's like, well, women, no, no, I'm big. This came from Morgan Stanley. We have to ask 50 people and all this stuff. It was just that ethos was really exciting, but also just the chaos and the uncertainty and the risk was uh, was more than overwhelming for me. You I, I, and this might is a long time ago, so I'm curious if you remember these conversations or if they happened. Like, do you know why they wanted you to work there? Like, you were investment banking, Morgan Stanley. Like, why did they want you at that startup? Yeah, Mark had a very Mark interesting, a very specific approach, and probably the best entrepreneur, one of the best entrepreneurs of all time, and an amazing investor. His whole mindset was, uh, one, I can raise capital, so I want to build out the team as quickly as I can. And he also knew in the, what we were building, he was had a strong belief that partnerships and the go-to-market aspect of that was going to be really critical. Mm -hmm. And so he went and hired very atypical, meaning non-engineering, more business-oriented, younger, aggressive folks to go lead that effort. And so it was very thoughtful about it. Uh, but it was like oil and water because all of their energy and mindset was technological engineering build product. And then they had these guys, they used to call us the, you know, checkered shirt, collared shirt guys. And yeah, but it was, you know, it was like kind of you guys over there, you weirdos that actually go out and, and do business deals. But it was a very purposeful, very thoughtful part of their strategy. But the oil and water part was because literally dropped into this super deep engineering environment. And here I was out there trying to, you know, go do business development deals. It's fascinating. And what did you learn? You mentioned there was kind of that oh crap moment, um, or probably <laughs> several. Like, what? What? Yeah. Any coaching for folks that are, you know, maybe looking to—I don't want to say a career change, but definitely a change in, you know, big company to small company. There's a lot of things, but any, any coaching you'd give them, any like things to think about or consider um, in terms of making a jump like that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, but I mean, the first one is like the PowerPoint deck or the pitch that you can give always sounds so good, right? If you're starting a business and that's why I wrote this book that I think we'll eventually talk about is like, you have to be crazy in some regards. You have to be passionate and you got to believe. So you're going to tell a story, but you're usually telling a future history. You're telling about something, what you think will happen in the future. And the reality is very different. So for me, having not worked at, you know, I already seen the pitches, but I was like, oh, wow. I mean, we haven't built the software yet. And they're like, no, of course not. We're just getting going. So there's that first part of like uh, what the story you tell versus reality. Secondly is the chaos. Just, you know, there is no processes. Startups are hard. There's no rules. There's no processes. There's nothing. Um, but then I also really, so those are kind of the natural ones. Um, but the lessons I've learned is if you're going to make that jump, the more you can go with an experienced, thoughtful leader, your learning curve will be much steeper. And so in my case, I went to work for Ben. Ben was, a, he still is an amazingly thoughtful individual. I learned so much from him that when I went to be do my own entrepreneurial gig, I didn't even realize it. So it's kind of going to, uh, you know, the, the masterclass. If you're going to go learn to barbecue, go to the masterclass person and try and learn from them. Even if it's a lesser job, because the experience, the education, everything will be so much more enhanced. And that was probably the, you know, after the fact, like, wow, yeah, that was so lucky that I went to work for those two guys. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, you know, I have a, a similar story um, where I went and worked for a startup. I was employee 24. And I really, the reason I was fortunate, they offered me the job, but uh, but the reason I took the job is because of Rob. I'll give Rob Munns a shout out. He started this company called Emotion Now. Anyways, they they sold you know their, their company and they kind of exited out several years back. But Rob and Mary Beth, a husband and wife team, started the company like 15 years ago. But anyways, I literally took the job because of Rob. Because I say, this is the type of guy I want to be around every day. This is someone I can learn from and you know I, I could grow my career. And he's still to this day, 
you know, one of, one of my mentors, if not one of my closest, you know, colleagues, friends, whatever you want to call it. Um, even though I haven't worked for him for several years. So anyways, just to, to kind of confirm yeah. what you just said, I, I think that's one of those things in the interview process. If you get that feel that, Hey, I love this person or these people that are in leadership, that might be a great win for you to say, Hey, this is a chance to go this route, you know? Yeah. And you know, the other, you know, now my job all the way to whatever is venture capital. So I invest in startups, like assume the idea is going to fail, you know, some staggering number of businesses fail. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I give in folks who are thinking about it is like, assume the idea is going to fail, which sounds horrible way to start a job, but let's assume it does. Do you respect the folks that are running it? Do you think you're going to learn? Is there ethics around it? You know, most of that stuff, because whenever you get the spreadsheet out, like, oh my gosh, the company, you know, it's going to be worth a billion dollars. I'm going to make a gazillion dollars. That usually is a really bad idea, bad reason to go join something. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, well, let's talk about the the book a little. You know, to ask you, you call yourself a part time author. I mean, <laughs> what what is that? Is that is when you write book number two or three? Are you a, an author, or what's that? When does that when does that label think, come on? Uh, yeah, probably now. Uh, yeah, no, no. It's, I mean, I, I wrote this book um, because I was frustrated. I, I like to write, so it was something I was. I had, had a blog site under my name, MikeSmirkla.com, and I would write about the mental aspect. I used to call it the other shit, other sheet, um, TOS. And it was all about the things that were not obvious. You know, how do you assemble a board? How do you keep your head on straight? And that became the book. But I wrote it because I saw a bunch of content that was either the how-to, how to build a business plan, mm -hmm. how to raise capital, or the, you know, the lightweight, how does, what does Zuckerberg do before 6 a.m., which doesn't really help. And so I, I saw this gap around the mental aspect of it. That's why I wrote the book. I interviewed a bunch of much more accomplished entrepreneurs and myself to get the ideas and the framework for the book. Um, I loved it. It was a really amazing experience. But had I known, like entrepreneurship, had I known how hard it was going to be or time-consuming, yeah. I probably wouldn't have done it. Loved it once. Don't think there'll be another one. Uh, but it was a great experience. What was that? Well, before we get into some of the, the keys of the book, what was some of the uh, the hardest parts writing it? Was it just writing in general? Was it getting an editor, publishing, launch? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was, I'd say like there's the kind of tactical and the strategic. I mean, one, I've, uh, you know, I have a day job and I have four kids and I'm happily married. So there was like, you know, blocking out time. That was kind of tactically. The freeform writing I was great. I mean, I really loved that part. The hardest part of the actual book was the editing. Um, there's a great, uh, I think Stephen King, the horror author says, you know, everything you should write, should, you should cut down by 10 to 15%. And I like to tell stories. So the book's filled with these weird, funny stories. And you'd sometimes the editor would just like, that has to go. And you're like, no, 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 that, that's a really good story. You're like, yeah, it has to go. So just that discipline of, of editing was really painful. Uh, and then the second part is, you know, just getting out and going through the process of choosing the cover. And I had an inching story around the cover and all this stuff. So it's a lot of work. Um, and I have amazing, amazing respect for people that do this as a living. I was fortunate that all the proceeds for the book go to charity. It was not a profit motive. So the people that are sitting there looking at their keyboard going, if I don't, you know, this book isn't successful, I'm not going to pay my rent. Wow. That is, that is true, uh, true artist. Mm. And it's Mr. Monkey and Me is the title, right? That is what, what's the real, what's the origin of the title? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, here I'll show you. This is my my uh, my prop. So basically, it's a monkey. Um, you know, basically, what I found, and I found it with the, when I talked to my, I to my own entrepreneurial experience, and everyone I spoke to uh, has a universal voice inside their head trying to talk them out of it. And the more I thought about my own experience, and also collaborated and discussed this with other entrepreneurs, and now my day job. I think everybody has this voice in their head, basically trying to talk you out of taking the risk and pursuing your dreams. Mm -hmm. In my case, um, I found it more powerful to personify. So make, bring, bring the beast forward and give it a name and actually imagine it. Mm -hmm. So when I was first struggling with this voice, I just made it out to be a big gorilla-like thing, jumping up and down, telling me that I was going to fail miserably. And by doing so, then I was able to say, okay, that's the voice. That's what it's all about. And, and almost address it in a more balanced way. Mm. And so my experience is everyone has that voice. The voice is different. In my case, it really spends a lot of time on fear, uncertainty, and doubt. 
Some people, it may be apathy. Some people, it may be um, limiting creativity. So what I want to do is bring that voice forward. And, you know, Kenley, the, the monkey's the real star of the book. So that's where the title came from. And, and Mr. Monkey visits, visits me throughout my journey. And at the end of each chapter, I have little monkey minders, ways to, to kind of address and overcome that voice. Was there a time, and and really, or actually, we talk about this so much on the podcast, all the, again, the mindset, the mental preparation, if you will, to for entrepreneurship and all these things. So actually, this might be fun to really condense it into like, you know, almost a linear path here for the next little bit. And I'm curious if you maybe start out with like, when did this idea, like, when did you think, okay, wait, it's not just these again. Yeah. What is, what does Zucks do at 6am? And that's going to ultimately make you a, a great entrepreneur. But like, when did you know, Hey, wait a minute, it's got to do something with your personal mindset, how you think about things, how you construct things in your, in your head. Did that idea originate a long time ago and then it slowly festered or was there an aha moment? When, when did you get that? Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, it festered. I'd written this weird blog post. So, so I used to, my entrepreneurial journey, I bought a small business. I ran it for 13 years, um, ended up taking it public, raised capital for some great entrepreneur, uh, some great venture providers. I was a public company CEO for three and a half years got unceremoniously fired at the end of that and started a venture capital firm. So kind of a fascinating, weird journey. Um, as I was transitioning, which is the word of like, go pack your bags and don't show up tomorrow <laughs> as a nice way to put transitioning from being a public company CEO to suddenly, you know, I, I, I was great. Here's a great career. Our personal advice, leave a 3000 person publicly traded company, come home and start helping your wife raise the kids it's a really good marital advice I, I can assure you it does not go well when suddenly you drop in you're like hey, i need to so anyways um i suddenly had this free time and i started writing i wrote a blog post called uh, something like the monster under the bed and it was just the first origin story of like how do you deal with as an entrepreneur that voice that's telling you things aren't going to work or when you miss the quarter you lose a customer that that rush of like, oh my gosh, I made a horrible decision. How do you deal with it? So that was the origin for it. But what it really crystallized, Brian, is when I went out and talked to probably 15 or 20 amazing entrepreneurs, much more successful than myself, I started asking them, tell me about what you think about mental toughness and what do you think you do about it? And that's where it was like, oh, wow, these people much more successful than me are all struggling with it. They gave me very good advice of what they do. And that turned into what's what I put in the book called the shape formula. But it really was this kind of idea of like, shoot, I've had this forever. Oh, wow. Everyone has it. It must be commonplace. And the more I dug, the more it became quite obvious that everybody has some form of this, of this monkey voice. Where's the, like, how do you get over the, I don't know what the phrasing, the chasm, the, 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 the divide here. Like, how do you go from, some folks are just fearful and, and we, and I wrote down like 20 different words here. We can kind of go through some different stuff. It'll be fun, but yeah. How do you get from one side of the Canyon to the other? You know, some people just never can move off it. And then there's a lot of folks that are okay with taking that risk, even though they know there's fear, there's no, there's uncertainty and doubt and those type of things. What would you kind of, uh, I guess the, the ones on either side of it, what would you say are the differences? Yeah. Well, I, th I mean, I think first of all, like from, I'll just give you personal because I think you can only do personal. It's like one, I had to recognize that this was a voice inside my head. I just had to call it out. Mm -hmm. Two, I had to realize that, you know, it could be helpful and it could be harmful. So there's part of it just addressing it. And then um, in the book, I, I have this thing called the shape formula, which is S-H-A-P-E, which we can dub it, dig into. But it was lessons that I learned and others that I, again, know that how they walked from the fear, oh my gosh, I'm not going to make it to some form of sustainability, and I, that was the, that's the whole, that's the meat of the book. But I think the first part is just acknowledging it. I mean, I, like, I don't know, Brian, I, I don't, we're just chatting this podcast. What would you say? What's your, what, what's the fear that you kind of, what's your monkey voice tell you about well, podcasts or, you know, what, what, yeah. how do you Well, it's actually funny. Cause that's, that's the whole, the whole reason that just get started mission, like how, yeah. why it started many years ago. And I, and actually something I've, I realized as I put my compass framework together and some of these other things is you know, the only way to discover happiness is you have to discover yourself is, is kind of what I de develop or what, what I um, realized was that once I realized that it was all inside me, it was me, I was the one making up the voices. Now, you know, you're certainly hearing the outside noise, but I was the one that was making a story out of it. I was the one that was making it more than it was. 
So, uh, yeah, but that's, you know, I was supposed to start this. Well, I'll even go back further is like I wrote. So um, just for context, as we're recording this, right, my second children's book is going to be launching like a week and a half, February 22nd. Right. Well, when I wrote my first one and it was based on, you know, I I was looking forward to playing golf with my son. I'm a big golfer. I don't know about you, but um, looking forward to playing golf with my son. So when he was born back in 2012, I had scribbled down some rhymes and started, I actually had like, you know, a good portion of this children's book written. Well, I shelved it for like six years because of exactly what you're talking about. I was like, who am I to think I can be an author? Who, you know, people, I'm, I'm a, I used to be a, a PGA professional. I used to be a, a golf professional. I was like, who, you know, I'm in the golf industry. Like that's what I'm known as. I had all of these things of like, wait a minute, you almost failed English in high school. Like, you know, <laughs> so yeah. I finally published that book. Well, it's supposed to be published in 2020 and then I had an illustrator issue, but nonetheless, it got published uh, uh, last year in May. And like I said, now it's like, okay, the second one, I have a second one coming out. That's totally different. Um, which is actually on mindset. It's called the magically magnificent, mysterious mind. So it's kind of funny how all of my learnings have actually translated into like this book for kids. Cause I think it's so important even at that age to understand the influence their mind has on them. So anyways, that's a long tangent of like, yeah, I think part of it was me discovering that I controlled it, that I, I had to sit and really think, okay, Brian, so you're saying you're well, this isn't um, this is actually really good, maybe for folks listening in. So I, I had a fear of flying. All right. So this is actually one example. So I had a fear of flying. Literally, I would, I don't know about you flying, but I would like white knuckle it, like holding the seat, scared for the entire flight. And in not an instant, but in a very short period of time, I, my fear of flying went away. Because huh. what I realized was, okay, first is let's internalize it. What are some things that I'm challenged with when I get in the flight? What are some things I think about? Why do I think, you know, there's going to be issues? So I, again, yeah. going through that yeah. pattern, yeah. that awareness. And then secondly, um, I'm a big believer that the more knowledge you have, that actually influences a lot of these decisions. So I started to research. I said, okay, wait a minute, Brian, you're scared of flying. You think the plane's going to crash, but pilots and flight attendants, they do this for their job every single day. Do, they, do I really think that they would put themselves in harm way? And, you know, and then I looked at, okay, there's been thousands and thousands and thousands of domestic flights over the course of a couple of days or a week or so in the U.S. And there's almost no, again, luckily, I mean, there's almost none, if ever, um, uh, emergencies, let alone crashes or anything. So I'm sad. So again, I went through all of this and eventually I was like, okay, it's in your head. So I just changed the story in my head. And now when I fly, I actually went down to, I know you're in Austin, I went and visited Austin last year. It was cool. Put on podcasts, relax, and, and don't even think about it anymore. But it's weird how 10 years ago, I was scared of it. Um, so anyways, that's, a, that's I don't know if I'm going too deep, but no, you'd no, ask. That's exactly so it kind of, what, it's dredging no, up all that's these things. Exact, so. That's exactly what I think. And I think, so what I try to do, and you know, not a psychologist, but I thought around entrepreneurship is what the book's about is how many, and listen, the, the book was written for, like, again, raised by a single mom. It's like, how many people like have an interesting idea that could help create jobs, change their economic setting, perhaps bring innovation to the world? Like the world needs entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Like fundamentally, the world needs more entrepreneurs, more diversity in entrepreneurship, and also needs the people that are when they're successful not to go do dumb things. And I believe that the bulk of why people don't start, why diverse candidates don't move forward um, with it, and or why people screw up is because of the voice inside their head. And the whole framework, the shape formula is the first one is uh, S is for self, like self-awareness to your point around what that process you just went through is, do I understand myself Do I understand what I'm challenged with mm-hmm. Do I understand where that voice is? Cause anything about the monkey voice, it's fascinating. I found at this point in my life with a pretty good, I feel like on a, on a scoreboard, I think I won compared to what the voice told me a long time ago. Right. But the voice keeps changing. So, so the, yeah. the crafty thing about it is now the voice, you know, my joke is like, he's sitting there like, okay, no one's going to listen to the podcast. Like, what do you have? Like, whatever the topic is, it's going to change and evolve and get right. stronger right. or different. <laughs> and I think that's where it's just the awareness uh, and to your book and what you're talking about, like with the flying part, so few people really grasp what that is. And I think once you do, it can have a dramatic impact on your life. And that's just, that's such a cool thing to talk about. Yeah. And to, to what you just said, I think it makes sense of like, 
you have to, I, I kind of label it as like you accept it, but then you have to respect it, right? You have to understand this is just who yeah. I am. This is, totally. and, and maybe by the way, those thoughts, it, I, and you, I know you probably, as you mentioned, you deal with this every day. I'm the same way. I have the fear still, like even putting out this children's book, like, oh, if people are going to think this is a dumb book, are they going to think what, like you go through these things. What, what, I, I have this really weird, um, I think it's weird. Maybe everyone will laugh when they hear this, but this, this um, visual of it. You, do you remember the, the movie, A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe? Of course. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. how I think about my thoughts. I think about those characters, like at the end of the movie where he's like, the characters are still there, like those voices, but yet they're just suppressed. Like he just has them to the side. He can control them now. That's how I yeah. think about it. They're always going to be so there. Same. It's, yeah. it's like, how do I but, keep them around and, and, but, you know, but, but I think this is so important because I, like, I, I mean, I talk about this in the book, but I assumed as a younger version of myself that once I achieved certain levels of economic success or, you know, had this or traveled that, that the voice would go away. One of the real motivators, like the second, yes, about the primary motive, secondary motivator of writing it was that I, it didn't go away. And so, you know, and that was a real learning for me, much like I love that movie, The Beautiful Mind, and when the characters are kind of there and he still sees right. them at the end, if you know that scene, it's a little bit like, I think that's part of the, the growth. It's like, okay, they're not going to go away and nothing you do is going to, so even if the becomes, you know, the next Dr. Seuss on those child, those children's books, there's still going to be doubt when you go write the next one, right? I mean, that's yeah. just part of life. And uh, this is this fascinating thing. You, you might appreciate this um, from a from a professional golfer. We were talking to a company that does a lot of the training for NFL athletes, mm-hmm. and they test them. Um, you know, part of the NFL draft, and they ask the athletes a series of questions and trying to indicate: um, Are they more more concerned with fame or fear of failure? And I ask you, like, kind of a spot question, but what do you think the greatest athletes? Which way do they do you think they end on that spectrum? Are they more so that are they more interested in the glory or are they more concerned about fear of failure? Wow. Yeah, the answer I, I, is fear I, I of know, failure. Yeah, I know. Well, for myself, even I had a fear. I well, the sports psychologist I worked with back in college was like, you have a fear of success. Like you kind of uh, almost the same. It's like you almost not self-sabotage, but I guess that's what he was saying was like you almost sometimes don't want to play well or maybe whatever internally because you're Huh. afraid of what that deserve it yeah it's huh. very odd well, well this was this was interesting because it was what it what it hit upon is like why does tom brady now as his podcast just retired but like why does he keep playing like what's left to prove yeah or michael jordan like it was all about like the general fear of failure is going to keep motivating and so i bring it up because yeah. i think the voice can you know it can be used as a real destructive force but it also can keep motivating you yeah well, that's what's interesting, even about Brady retiring. I actually think that, you know, whether folks agree or not, and thinking through it just briefly is like, I think there's a lot of courage there to retire because you want to do the Peyton Manning thing. You go out on top, you win the Super Bowl, yeah. you ride in the sunset. The fact that you lose in that style where they, you know, they, they were down a lot, they could have won that playoff game, but to, that takes a lot of courage to say, you know what, I'm, I'm hanging it up. I'm done. Now, I'm not saying he can, we won't come back, who knows, but most likely I think he's settled with like, I have all these other business ventures. I have all these other things. I have my family, like that's important to me. And I think he's okay yeah. with hanging it up. You know, I don't, it's really funny. You said Brian, cause I was watching the pro bowl. I've got a 13 year old who's mad about sports and watching it. I didn't, I mean, I knew he had a good year, but, um, they were going through his stats for this year. And you're like, Holy cow. You know, it's like when Michael Jordan at the end of his career went and played for the Wizards. You kind of knew you're like, all right, it's time for Michael to hang it up, you know. But Brady, it's like he still he had a phenomenal year. Uh, yeah. Well, you know what's interesting? I don't know if you if you talked to a lot of entrepreneurs or maybe your early, you know, the startups that you, you uh, invested in stuff. I, I thought about this many years ago, and actually it, it aligns with ironically, I don't know why I just thought about this. What Brady said about, I don't know if you've read his his kind of little speech there, whatever he wrote of why he retired about the commitment. And making the you know commitment every day, and if you can't give kind of a hundred percent, what what have you? Yeah, um, that's kind of the approach. Like I I know when I you know kind of in enterprise sales roles and stuff like that, a lot of young or, or new employees or, or new folks of sales, like they'll ask, you know, about hey, what do you think of this company or whatever? And I and I always give them the same advice. It was like if you stop enjoying showing up on a Monday morning, it's time for you to look elsewhere. It's time for you to go yep. somewhere else because if you're not committed to it, if you're not 
in a frame of mind that you think you, you can succeed on what your expectations are, but also help the organization. It's time to go and no hard feelings kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think even as an entrepreneur, when I was leading a company, I started to gain more appreciation for that. I think there's a great Steve Jobs quote about the number he would ask himself, I, I may get it wrong, but direction correct was, if he went by after enough, a couple enough mornings in a row where he didn't, he couldn't look himself in the mirror and say, I want to go work right. at Apple or Pixar, then he knew it was time to change. And that's a, that's a courageous thing. Cause I think a lot of people are like, Oh yeah, but the challenge like, no, but like you only get one life. Like if you want to go do something of entrepreneurial endeavors, come do that, like go after it. Uh, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard. When uh, and this is kind of a, a I guess a transition. We're, we're talking the same thought about these things around you know entrepreneurship and mindset and all this. How much does with your conversations with uh, with different startups or, or founders or those type of things? You know, I love Seth Godin's talk or his thoughts around sunk costs and and kind of what we're talking about. We kind of keep this stuff because like, well, we invested a year or two years. Like, yeah, we're on the right path. How often does that come up around? Hey, we this isn't right. We have to stop it or we have to pivot or we have to do something different. And that goes partly to the individual mindset, but also maybe as an organization structure as well. Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. I mean, I would say in my job now as a venture capitalist, both looking at existing companies and, and with our portfolio, we've got over 60 different investments now. It is probably the hardest concept. And I, I think that sunk cost might be as humans, I'm sure there's harder ones, it might be the hardest thing for humans to get their head around. You see it every day, like this entrepreneur. And because, you know, what we love to celebrate as humans, right? We love to celebrate grit and sticking to it and and keep going. Um, Tends to be the ones who stick with it and go through all the battles. It's a pretty rare story. And the reason that we celebrate them is because they're really stinking rare. Um, But I I think that some costs should be much much higher in the prioritization of people when they think about things. Meaning like, just because you put the time into it, it doesn't, it, it's, it's to continue on with something just because of time is a really bad metric, but so hard to do. I mean, I find in my own personal life, like how many things do you do because you're, you stick with something because of the historical investment really stinking hard to have that mentality uh, to, to try and avoid and not get caught up thinking about some cost. Well, and I think this goes so back to what we were talking about time. earlier right though but on, on like self-awareness it's like you know you look at it in a, if you take a relationship um you know you look at red flags right you always hear about red flags right well when off when often do we look at either ourselves and our decisions or again maybe we're trying to start a business and the red flags of like wait a minute it's not that hey okay there's a red flag here let's figure out how we you know we get by it but at least sitting in that thought and saying okay wait a minute am i acknowledging this or do i kind of want to avoid it do I want to have blinders yeah. on and go around it just because I don't want to accept it? You know, it's a, it's a great differentiating for Brian. And what I tell people all the time, like if you're thinking about starting a business, which I think may be helpful for your listeners getting started is go ask the smartest people, you know, what they think about it. Try and have people talk you out of it, literally like challenge people to talk you out of it. And, but don't go in there with a, I'm, I'm going to do this regardless listen to what they're saying because really smart people that care about you or really smart people that have industry expertise, they're just telling you what they think. And if, you know, you go tell a hundred people about something and a hundred people give you really good advice as to why it's not a good idea. It's a little bit of a litmus test, both on your own commitment to it. Like you're easily dissuaded, probably pretty good. You're not committed, but two smart people telling you something, I think it's a good idea to say, all right, well, maybe I need to you don't have to completely give up on the idea, but shifting course, I think real strength of entrepreneurships, that balance between some cost and not is the ability to shift, you know, not 180, but like I heard the feedback I took into consideration. I'm going to move a little bit direction to left or right. I think those are the most successful entrepreneurs. They're, they're still going to keep going because of their persistence on their overall idea, but how they do it or their approach shifts based on feedback. That balance is so rare. And when we see that, we're like, wow, that's an entrepreneur we want to work with. How, uh, this is a slight tangent. I want to go back. I I wrote something down here. I want to get your thoughts on, but uh, on that point, how often when you're looking at funding organizations and and companies, like, this is probably, maybe it's a dumb question because I'm I'm, I'm trying to give you a, you give me a percentage here, but like, how often is it the idea and the chance that this could be really successful and then banking on the founder? 
and that they're actually willing to make hard decisions, make changes, you know, have that grit, know when to, you know, stop, et cetera. Yeah, no, no, it's it's not a dumb question. It's, it's the question that we spend every waking moment when we're talking about this as a firm. That's that that question you just raised is what we talk all the time about, and it is almost impossible to get right. But if I had to give it a percentage, what we look at it, the approach we take is, do we think the idea directionally is a big one? Do we think there's some differentiation around the idea? But 90% or probably 99% of why we get, we do or do not something is around the entrepreneur. Because what you're looking for, the way we describe it at Next Coast is they're passionate. They can't see the world without their idea coming to life. They're passionate about building it and they know what it's going to take. That kind of gets a self-awareness. But then they're coachable, which is a really weird balance because what you're looking for is someone that says, you know, like, let's go golf. I want to be the best golfer in the world. I'm willing to take the practice. That won't get you there unless you're willing to have a coach stand over you and help you with all aspects of the game. Yeah. It's the same thing with entrepreneurship. But but at the end of the day, it's almost all around. If we're, we're kind of at don't know it's going to be whether or not we believe the entrepreneur is someone uh, we call them glass eaters, really weird term, but it speaks to that like inability to, uh, to give up on their idea. And by the way, this is, I think this is a good conversation we're having and, and the chance to be vulnerable here as well. I even recognize now, like when I just asked you that question and I said, Oh, this may be a dumb question. I recognize like, no, Brian, why are you saying that? I think it was a good question and you, uh, you agreed, I guess, you know, like, I think it was a good question, but like why I have to set that up with that. Almost, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that's part of that yeah, yeah. old self-limiting <laughs> beliefs, you know? Yeah, this gets um, into the, the problem with, the problem with self-awareness, which is in the shape formula <laughs> is then you're aware of it. And it's like, it's yes. this kind of weird thing, but, but that's growth, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so one of the things I wrote down here when you were telling the story earlier is uh, when we were talking about kind of the, the sunk cost and stuff, how big is, and I'll just kind of give you the word, I'm curious your thoughts on it, is patience. Oh, give me a little more context because I have a very strong point of view. I had my gut reaction. Well, I have a strong point of view as well. So I'm curious, yeah. just around patience in general, because especially in the startup world, the entrepreneur world, as you know, we have a lot of comparison bias. We see the folks next to us running quicker. They got a big round of funding. They they had a hyper growth. And we're sitting here like, oh, am I not doing enough? And it understanding like, hey, we got to have some patience here and understand where we're at. And it's okay. Yeah. I. Um, it's funny. My, my visceral reaction was I no one who ever worked for me in the history of my career would ever use the word patient to describe me. Um, usually what they would describe me the opposite impatient, which is like, we, you know, let's go, go, go. I think the word I may think that's incredibly important is perspective, which is not, it's not the twin side of that coin, but it's like the ability to elevate up. And I think part of my job now as a, an investor and board member is to step back and say, all right, let's look at where you are, right? Let's look at, you know, what we've, how we've invested in the product or whatever this thing is, how we move from stage A to B to C. Mm -hmm. So helping entrepreneurs step back a little bit and understand how far they've come and where we're going is absolutely critical. I would argue though, that most of the amazing entrepreneurs in the world are, are generally characterized by impatience. Um, Cause I, I think that's just, it is, it, you, you really, you have to have perspective and you have to help your team understand that these things take a long time. In my job, patience is really important. I'm investing in companies that are I'm going to invest in for a decade or more. And most of them are just an idea, like I'm planting a tree is the way I describe it. It's like I'm planting, not me, but my firm is planting 20 different trees. Some are going to grow to be giant and some won't make it, right? That's our job. So we have to have perspective and patience. But as an entrepreneur, I think much more important to understand the where you're where you've come from where you're going versus patience but that's my perspective is there anything practices i guess to do to get into that state of mind to think that way because if you are always going to stop and think for a second or yeah i mean i think that one of the attributes in the formula is perspective um uh or i'm sorry persistence and i think um persistence comes from perspective so persistence is understanding like back to that marathon example if you've never run before and you want to go run a marathon uh i wouldn't hand you a pair of shoes and say good luck right 
we talk about a six month training and we talk about changing diet, like all this different stuff that you would do. And you do all these long runs and eventually you'd complete the marathon. Like anyone can run a marathon, but it's going to take like six months to, to really go through it. Um, so I think that the, the learn, the lesson is, as an entrepreneur, it's just like, you've got to have that persistent mindset is so critical. Um, doesn't mean you have to be patient or impatient. It's more just having that mindset of understanding what you're doing is hard. It's going to take a long time. There's going to be ups and downs, but that is, uh, that's part of the territory. What can you share? I, if I've, if I'm doing my math correct here, you, you've shared self, you've shared persistence, you've oh, shared yeah. awareness. What can you share the H and the E? <laughs> Might as well round help. it out. Yeah. So self-awareness, help, authentic, authenticity, persistence, and then expectations. That's the formula. But H is probably the most important one, which is getting help. Um, another thing I found certainly as a founder early on in my days, and I see it now in my day job is a lot of entrepreneurs um, believe they have to have all the answers, have to know everything. That's a sign of weakness. At least that's what I thought sign of weakness to ask for help or admit I didn't know the answer. Um, and then when I started to take a more broad like self-awareness, okay, what do I need help? And then when you, you know, when you put it out in the energy in the world, I'm, I'm always amazed at how many people are out in this world that are willing to help and help you achieve your dreams. And part of that's just, channeling that or, or getting making that part of your uh, your daily practice yeah and that and probably is the hardest i even talked but you said you have you have kids like i have a nine-year-old and even asking him about like hey did you know he said oh i didn't get this the other day we we're talking about math he's like yeah i got these problems wrong i said well did you ask for help and and it was kind of like the the sheepish kind of like no i didn't really want i'm like dude raise your hand. Yeah. No one's going to be upset. You know, and it's, I think we get that so ingrained as a kid, like wanting, you know, like being scared. I used to be the back, you know, sit in the back of the class, never raised my yeah. hand kind of thing. And it took a while to realize, wait a minute, no, ask for help, be open to that. And all of a sudden yeah. the doors open, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Let's, uh, we could probably go for another hour here, but I want to be sensitive to your time. Um, Let's end on this. I think will be a good spot. Is I, you know, I always like to ask. So, and, and you could take one of the you know part of shape if you want, or, or something else. But any lasting thought? Maybe it's a quote, a piece of advice, anything you would share. I, I always like to say, like you know, we have these post-it notes. People, you you put them on the computer and you're looking at it every day. Anything specific you would encourage the 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 person getting started, the entrepreneur out there, to to write on that post-it note. Well, it's so funny. I didn't know you asked this question. I've got one right here that I'm that I'm contemplating now. And I've throughout my career, I've had yellow sticky notes, and they've said a lot of different things. <laughs> some some of which are not are not fit for a family audience. But right now, the thing I've been thinking about is right in front of me. Is says comparison is the thief of joy. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. And I, I started thinking about it because, and I think it applies to people that are contemplating a career shift or entrepreneurship. And almost back to this this whole Mr. Monkey and Me uh, book is just you know, you can waste so much energy. Um, I don't even know where I got that quote from. Someone said to me, I just jot it down and now I have it there because in my job, like to your point, you can start thinking about what other firms are doing or what investments we didn't make. Um, you can start to spend so much energy around that and it's a thief. And I really love that comment um, because it whether it be self-development or pursuing your dreams, you know, don't let the thief grab you. You know, don't let someone rot. Like I love the thief word because it's like, Oh, I hate thieves. Like, wait a minute, I'm going to let comparison just rob me of my joy. So anyways, that's my, that's my post-it note of the day. I love it. No, it's actually one of my favorite quotes uh, because it goes back to the thought of what are, what do you want to do? You know, what do you want to do in life? What makes you happy? And that's why the, I like the word joy in there. Like what makes you joyful and, and fills you up? Why are you letting others that are kind of outside influence that? Right. If yeah. you want to, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? You want to start a business. You want to write a book. You want to do all these things, start a podcast. I don't know, whatever, go do it then. Why are you letting yeah. other folks and what they say get in the way of that potential joy yeah. that they have, you know? And especially as it relates to starting a business. And again, I did, I wrote this book to, to encourage people for entrepreneurship because I think it's so critical. Mm -hmm. It's okay. You know, Having a, a, a coffee shop that employs 10 people or four people in your neighborhood gives you something that you want to do in your life, mm -hmm. employs some people and becomes a part of the community. That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Don't worry about like what Zuckerberg eats before breakfast. Who cares? You know, yeah. it's just, it's, 
it's easier. It's easy to think about hard to do like always. Yeah. Mike, that's been a lot of fun. Uh, where can everyone say hello to you online? Where's the best spot? Um, yeah. And I would be remiss. I might've mentioned before. So Mr. Monkey and me, um, all the proceeds go to charity. It's uh, available on Amazon. And then Mike Smirklo, S-M-E-R-K-L-O.com. My blog uh, site, I do, I write there. There's a quiz you can take about entrepreneurship. And then that's all my, my social uh, handles. Although I'm not super active on the social stuff, but uh, I don't want my joy consumed by there social you, either. But there you go. At Mike Smirklo is where you can find me as well. Mike, this is a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's real fun. Hey, everyone, just one more quick thing before you skip along in your day. You know, if you do enjoy this content or other things that I've put out or just enjoy learning more and trying to adapt your thinking uh, to become happier each and every day, there's a couple of things that you may benefit from. Um, if you go to my website, brianondraco.com forward slash subscribe, you can sign up for my newsletter that goes out once a week. And that's really a digest of a lot of information that I gather throughout the weeks, whether it's a new video that I think could be informative or a podcast that's been valuable to me, book that I might read, etc. Um, secondly, I blog three times a week, and these are more micro blogs, one to five minute reads, short digestible blogs that'll send right to your inbox on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning. So check that out on my website, brianondraco.com forward slash subscribe if you think it's something you might enjoy. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.